Hi, my name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 103, 1 through 13. My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him, and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and ye will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. you remain standing as we pray? So, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are gracious and generous, abounding in love. And we pray this morning that as we open up your scriptures and hear from your word, that you would give us the ability to hear your word speaking to us. Let our hearts be good soil that your word can take root in and bear fruit. Our lives can bear fruit to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Glenn Packham, the lead pastor around here. Sorry I missed you last Sunday. I was um, uh, on my way to England for a week of what could be uh, the last bit of residency to finish up this doctorate in theology program. I'll I'll tell you a little bit about uh, airport foibles uh, in a moment later in the service. But here we are in week five of our series through 
the book of Romans, and um, it's been a great little journey. I, I, I've talked to several people who said, you know, when we did a Roman study, we did this Bible study for a whole year, and, uh, and then the truth is you really could study this book for a long period of time, and so to kind of go through it as quickly as we are almost seems a little bit strange, but sometimes I think that we can go so deep into the stuff that we lose the big picture, and so as, as a historian once noted about even writing just, just human history, he said, sometimes what we need is the grand outline and the s- significant detail. And so in, in many ways, this series is about helping you see the grand outline of Paul's gospel preaching and the significant detail of it. And so in week one, when we started with week one, we said the gospel, the good news is Jesus. The good news is not about uh, some, some sort of plan or formula. The good news is Jesus himself. Jesus, who is the Lord and the Christ, the King and the Savior. But we also said there's bad news that comes along with this. The world has fallen far from God. The world has turned away. The human race has turned away from God. And as we worked through these different chapters in Romans 1, we talked about how Paul's dealing with the Gentiles or the people outside the covenant. And so he points out their idolatry as sort of the root of human sin and rebellion. And then in, in chapter 2, he says to the Jews who were maybe starting to think, aha, those, gen- those Gentiles, we're covenant people. And he says, not so fast. You've been unfaithful. And so as Pastor Jason preached on Romans 2, he said, it kind of is designed to make the Pharisee in all of us squirm. Uh, anything, we, we may not grab to our you know, Jewish identity or whatever, but we might grab for other things that say, oh, well, not me. And Romans 2 is a way of saying, no, no, yes, you. And then Romans 3, I talked about sin working like an infection that spreads and that sin isn't just personal but has these communal and structural uh, aspects to it. And so we're all implicated in the spread of the disease. Even the carriers of the cure are themselves infected. And then we said how Jesus himself is the mercy seat. He's the sacrifice and the mercy seat, the place that we now meet with God. The cure has arrived. Last Sunday, Jason preached out of Romans 4 about faith as our way of entering into this covenant promise, the salvation work that God has made available to us in Jesus. And Paul does this whole argument in Romans 4 where he says, in case you think I'm making stuff up, a new kind of religion. Let me just go all the way back to Father Abraham and show you that the way into God's promises has always been faith. And so here we are today talking about the triumph of grace. Now, if I were to say to you, what do you think grace is? How does grace work? Probably the chances are is you'll describe to me grace as something like a do-over. Oh, grace, it's like, uh, oh, a second chance to maybe get it right again. Or maybe you'll describe grace as kind of the suspension of judgment. Now, I know you parents in the room, you probably never do this, but sometimes I'll make a certain warning to our kids and say, hey, if you do that, I'm going to have to take away, and then you say something that you really know you're not going to take away, and you should never do this, and I know you Probably don't, but I sometimes do. And then, you, and then you, you're, you're hoping that they won't actually do it, but then they do it, and then you're like, oh, darn it. 
Now I'm stuck. Now do I really take away the thing that I didn't want to take away that I said I was going to take away? And so then we say, aha, I'll, this is a moment of grace. Right? And so we think of grace as like the suspension of judgment. I say, oh, no. I but I want to say to you this morning that grace is so much more than that. Grace is much more than a second chance. Grace is much more than the refusal to bring judgment or punishment. Those are, those are some dimensions of it. But I want you to understand grace in a, a creatively powerful way. Grace has the power to create something new. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because the very, the very simple meaning of the word charis, the word that's translated in the New Testament as grace very often, just means gift. And in fact, if you read Romans 5, you'll see that it's something like 11 times this word appears. But interestingly, in your English translations, sometimes it appears as the word gift, and sometimes it appears as the word grace. But guess what? It's the same word. So in the, in the letter to the, to, to the church in Rome, in the book of Romans, this word charis appears 24 times, 24 times. But about 11 of those times, about half of those references are right here in this chapter. If there's any doubt, what's Romans 5 about? It's about the gift, the gift of God. And in the ancient world, a gift was not like we think of gift giving. We think of gift giving as, hey, a gift means there are no strings attached. But that, this can be shown out with, with sociology and different anthropological research. This can be shown out that actually that kind of concept of a gift with no strings attached is a Western invention. And if you've traveled to the global south or the east, and, and especially the world of the first century, we've studied different letters from Roman times and Greek times and even going back to Jewish times, all of the instances of gift giving, a gift was meant to create a new situation. A gift was meant to create a new situation. And actually, we have examples of this. There are still, despite what we like to say, a gift has no strings attached, there are still gifts in our day that create new situations. You know how I know? What is the symbolism of a gift of a diamond ring? If a man befriends a woman and she befriends him and they're chatting online or whatever, and say, oh, let's go get coffee and they decide to get coffee, their first date, and he thinks, I should bring a gift for the first date. But something convinces him that instead of flowers, he's going to bring a diamond ring. And he shows up to the first date and says, hi, so nice to meet you in person. And he says, here, I just got you this little thing. It was my grandmother's, but now I just wanted to give it to you. you know? She'd say, you are crazy. And we are not having this coffee right now. right? Because... A certain gift, even for our, us in our Westerns, certain gifts, they mean something new. They mean a new kind of situation. And the gift of a diamond ring is like, ah, uh, you're trying to make us like a thing, and I'm not sure if we're going to be a thing, right? You, on, the, on the flip side of it, do any of you remember the, the old movie, Father of the Bride, Steve Martin? Just a classic, right? You remember on the night before the wedding, she's totally distraught, the, the bride, because her fiancé had given her a gift, the pre-wedding gift, and what was her gift? 
a blender. And she's like, oh no, this is what he thinks I'm going to be, is some woman in the kitchen blending stuff, you know. And he's like, what? What did I do wrong? It's just a gift, right? No, we know in our bones, we know that gifts create a new situation. And she was afraid that the gift of a blender meant her new destiny in life was to blend things, right? And so we understand gifts are not, there's no such thing as a gift with no strings attached. Gifts create a relationship. Gifts affirm a relationship. Gifts communicate value. Gifts shape a destiny. Think about when you gave your teenage child a gift, maybe partial donation, of the keys to a new car. That gift means something. Gifts create new situations. So I want us to read this chapter here, Romans 5, through the lens of gift giving. Let's start in the middle. Let's start with verse 14, and then we'll back up to verse 1. But death ruled from Adam until Moses, even over those who didn't sin in the same way Adam did. And Adam was a type of the one who's coming. But here it is in verse 15. But the free gift of Christ... If you're the type of person that underlines in your Bible or highlights whatever, that's the phrase. The free gift of Christ isn't like Adam's failure. If many people died through what one person did wrong, God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift. And in case you missed it, dash, who's the gift? What's the gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, that comes through grace? What do we need to say? The gift is the gift. Grace is the gift of Jesus Christ. Grace is the very gift of Jesus Christ. We're going to say a lot more about what this gift means, but there's no other way of defining the gift other than to say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not the gift of answered prayer. It's not the gift of your life working out just right. It's not the gift of all your dreams coming true. It's better than that. It's the gift of Jesus Christ. Now, if we get this wrong we'll start to think that the gospel is about the good news of, what, a better bank account, a better this, a better that. And then all of a sudden, we'll say, well, I don't know if I've received any gifts from God because I have all these unanswered prayers. And, and really, what we need to root ourselves in is that the greatest gift of all is Jesus. And it's already been given to you. Amen? In fact, C.S. Lewis has this famous quote where he says something like, you know, God can't give us peace or joy or life apart from himself because no such thing exists. It's not as if God's sitting in the factory warehouse where they make peace and joy and someone says, Lord, I need your peace. He says, okay, it's just coming right up. There you go. No, if God's going to give us peace, if God's going to give us joy, if God's going to give us life, he's going to give us himself. Grace is the gift of Jesus Christ because None of those things exist apart from Jesus, amen? So it is the gift of Jesus Christ. But what does this mean for us? What does this gift mean for us? If you've got Romans 5 opened up, what we're going to do is we're going to take a few phrases from verses 1 and 2, and each phrase, and then we're going to jump into the middle of the text, And because it's almost like Paul gives us the headlines in verse 1, and then he gives us a little bit more as the chapter goes on, so we're going to bounce back and forth. So Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness. That's number one. Because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. Because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we have been made 
righteous. And then jump down with me to verse 16. The gift isn't like the consequences. Now, this is important, you guys, because we kind of, whether we are aware of it or not, we kind of think about life as karma. And so we think, well, if I did these bad things, there's going to be consequences. In fact, the Jews had a way of understanding this through the, the lens of sowing and reaping. And so there was this whole idea, well, I've sowed all this sin, so there's going to be all these consequences. And Paul's trying to say in the next four verses here that the gift is nothing like the consequences of sin. It doesn't follow the logic of consequence and implications, okay? So the gift isn't like the consequences of one person's sin. The judgment that came from one person's sin led to punishment, but the free gift came out of many failures led to the verdict of acquittal. Acquittal. If death ruled because of one person's failure, those who received the multiplied grace and the gift of righteousness will even more certainly rule in life through the one person, Jesus. Death's not going to rule. You're going to rule. So now the righteous requirements necessary for life are met for everyone through the righteous act of one person. Just as judgment fell on everyone through the failure of one person, he's talking about Adam, Many people were made righteous through the obedience of one person. He's talking about Jesus. Just as many people were made sinners through the disobedience of one person. Because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. Now, I said to you that grace has a creative dimension to it. It creates something new. So with each of these points, I'm going to say what grace creates. Okay, you ready? So with this first one, that because of the gift we've been made righteous... What I want you to see is that grace creates a new status. Grace creates a new status, a new standing. And some of the reformers tried to figure out how do we define this, and so they went full on with legal language. You have this, you've been acquitted, and Paul uses acquittal language. We just read it. So some of that is there. But here's the thing, none of our metaphors are adequate for this. Somehow, and I love the translation of this because some, some of your translations will say, we have been justified by faith. That's great. And that's true. But it's deeper than just, just a, a, a verdict. You know why? Because in our minds, we can sort of think that God was a dishonest judge. That God looked at us and he knew we were guilty, but he's like, wink, wink. Not guilty. And so even the word justified, we're like, what, well, is God just playing games with words here? You know? But I love the translation of it that says, we have been made righteous. And that's why when the reformers start tried to talk about an imputation or an impart, they're getting closer to the idea here, somehow we've actually been made new. A new status has arrived. We, God, grace creates in us a new status. So as I was traveling this week, uh, I realized on all of these flights and busy airports that I had the wrong status. Uh, clearly, I was doing the international travel game wrong, you know, and you're reminded of it because as soon as you get on this giant aircraft that's about to take you nine hours across the Atlantic, you, you are forced to walk past the people who had the right status. Okay, and, and I don't even think this was first class. I think this was like one, a couple notches below. It might have been business. And God bless you if you have this status. I think it's what I wish I had it, you know. But it became clear to me that I didn't. And uh, as I'm walking past, you have these people, and they have their seats that are 
they don't just recline fully, but they're angled away from the aisle so that they don't have to look at the plebeians, you know? <laughs> and there's a wall that comes up because, God forbid, that as you walk past them, they should catch a glimpse of you, you know? So there's a wall, they're angled away from the aisle, and then it fully reclines, and then there's a TV that's at least three times larger than the TV that I had, you know? And I realized I don't have the right status to belong here. And then on the way home, we were flying, I was flying through Dallas, and uh, you, you know, a lot of the other stuff went really fast, but somehow the, the place where you get your bags and walk through customs, all, a bunch of flights had must have just arrived at the same time. So there was this long line that snaked all the way around the baggage claim hall. And, uh, and, and then there was this one line that said above it, Global Entry. Now, global entry, I gather, is something you can pay for, and you can get that status. I just didn't. And, uh, and so here I am with the rest of the hoi polloi uh, in this long line, waiting to just bring my bag through, and I'm thinking, i got 30 minutes before my connecting flight, you know, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the people start pulling people out of our line randomly to let them go through global entry. Randomly, these people didn't pay for it. They didn't have the status. They weren't dressed properly. They didn't have it. But, but it's, it's, there was nobody going through global entry, so they're like, well, let's just let people go through here. It's like, hey, ma'am, sir, would you come through? And I'm thinking, I've been standing in this line for 45 minutes, and for no, nothing that they did to deserve, they were conferred a new kind of status. Grace works like that. Grace creates a new kind of status that you had no business getting, but somehow you have it. And when you walk through that line, people weren't like, oh, I, I'm not global entry. Actually, one person did say that. And the lady's like, I don't care. Just come through here. Right? Man. And this is what I think. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I say, how are you doing? They say, oh, well, I'm better than I deserve. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't want to pick on, on, on you if you say that, because I understand the, the sentiment. The sentiment is we didn't get what we deserve. We heard it, Psalm 103. God didn't give us what we deserve. That's true. But because he didn't give us what we deserve, you no longer need to act like you didn't deserve it. You don't need to live like Eeyore saying, well, I don't know, better than I deserve, I guess. As if God didn't want to give you this status, but I guess, okay, go on through. Gee whiz, you know. <laughs> to be conferred a new status means that's now who you are. You have been made righteous. You have been made in right standing. Well, I don't feel like it, but I fell short this week. I, I, but, but you have been made. Why? It says through his faithfulness. The rest of verse 1 says, we've been made righteous through his faithfulness. And then all those verses we just read is Paul's way of unpacking it. It was Adam's disobedience that got us all infected with the sin. But you know what? It's Jesus' obedience that is how much more. It's Jesus' obedience that makes it even stronger. It's Jesus' obedience that confers on us a new kind of status. And then the end of verse 1, he says, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because of the gift of Jesus, we have peace with God. Because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Now this word peace is also interesting because when we think of it, we tend to kind of go Buddhist on this, you know. 
Like, oh, I just, I need inner peace. And I understand there is a sense in which when we are at peace with God, we do experience a true kind of inner peace. That, that's, that, that's true. But I want to say to you that this is primarily out of two different worlds. One, there's the deep Jewish idea of shalom. That peace is everything back together again. And Paul's saying, you are back together again with God. You are experiencing the shalom of being put back together in relationship with God. Another way to think about it is the peace when war is over, when it's all ended now. Paul will later on talk about how we were like, we were treating God like our enemy. And yet God made peace with us. I don't know how many of you in the missions world maybe recall the story of the peace child of Don Richardson, the missionary to New Guinea. But years ago, decades ago, there's this story of Don Richardson and, 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 and his team, and they, were, they lived in New Guinea, and, and they were trying to reach a, a, this very uh, uh, unreached tribe that was in a remote uh, place, and, and they discovered every time they would try to tell the gospel story, the people would start cheering for Judas. And it's because in their culture they valued treachery. They thought the one who could pull off the greatest, you know, treachery, most treacherous act was the hero. So they're listening to the story of Jesus getting arrested, and they're like, Judas, yeah, my boy, you know. And these guys are like, well, what are we going to do? We got it all, they're missing this, you know. And then oh, as time went on, they discovered that the tribe was then at war with another neighboring tribe. And. There was no way, they were trying to figure out how to resolve this conflict until one day the chief of the one tribe took his firstborn son and gave him to the other chief as an offering and they called this the peace child. And then the war was over. Now when we think about a peace offering, usually it's the offending party that offers up a peace offering to the offended, right? And Paul says, you know what God did? God offered up his son to reconcile us. Like, but we were the offending party. We were the ones who treated God like an enemy. And Paul says, I know, isn't that the beauty of God's love? That in order to reconcile us, in order for God was saying, I don't want to be at war with you anymore. Isn't this, this is so powerful. Because I'm telling you, in somewhere in our subconscious, we have convinced ourselves that God is an angry war God who can't wait to strike us down. And Paul says, this is God who refused to be at war with us. This is a God who says, I don't want it. I don't want to fight with you. I don't want you to treat me like you're enemy. I am going to end this by giving my son as the peace child. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. This says to me that grace creates a new relationship. Grace creates a new relationship. You think of the power of these moments when all of a sudden a relationship that didn't exist one moment and now is created. At a wedding ceremony when you say the words, I do, all of a sudden a new relationship has been created and then you spend the rest of your life trying to become what you already are, right? Saying, okay, now how do we actually do this, you know? 
how do two lives do this? Or I think about our friends who have adopted children and the miracle and the beauty of adoption, where all of a sudden, one moment, a child who did not biologically arrive from these two people now suddenly says, mother, father, and they say, son, daughter. Grace creates a new relationship. Where we were once like this, now all of a sudden you're saying, son, you call me daughter, father, Jesus, like this, this really happened? Grace creates a new relationship. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, and we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him. So because of the gift of Christ Jesus, we have access access by faith into this grace. Here, he's describing grace as if it is this great treasury that now all of a sudden we have accesses to, we have access to these resources by faith. I think what that says to me is that grace creates new possibilities. Now, if we had only said the first two things, that grace creates a new status and grace creates a new relationship, you'd say, well, that's great, but guess what? I still don't have the power to live the way God wants me to live. I still don't have the ability to become free, and I still don't, and I still don't, and I still don't. And that's why this last one is key, that grace creates new possibilities. We have access by faith into this grace. Resources that you didn't used to have, you now have, i.e., the Holy Spirit, resurrection life, the life of God working in you. Do you remember the day that you ordered your first iPhone? Anybody? Some of you, I mean, it's only 10 years ago. Maybe later for others of you, late adopters. How about, do you remember the day you ordered your first laptop? Maybe if you're a Mac user, the first time you switched from PC to Mac and you got super excited because you're like, I'm going to make new movies, I'm going to do, you know, all these free software things that are super easy, right? And maybe it happened like this for you where the UPS guy arrived at the door and he says, here's your new laptop or here's your new phone. You just need to sign right here. So you sign for it and you get like, wow, that's great. I think that faith is like signing for the package. Faith is like saying, yes, Jesus, yes, God, I will receive the gift of who Jesus is. But nobody would think that signing for the package actually made the package arrive, right? (laughs) You can't go stand on the front of your driveway with an imaginary piece of paper that you're signing, flagging down the UPS truck, saying, I've signed for my new computer. And he's like, nobody sent you one. No, but, but I've signed for it. Meaning, the point of salvation is not your faith. It's God's grace. It's not your faith. It's God's grace. Sign all you want. If nobody gave the gift, you ain't going to receive it. Right? But we have access by faith into this grace, which now means new possibilities. Things that could not have happened in the past are now possible for you. Things that you thought, there's no way I can change. There's no way this can happen. There's no way I can. All of a sudden, there are new possibilities. Verse 20, 
The law stepped in to amplify the failure, but, but where sin increased, grace multiplied even more. If you're underlining, underline even more. Even more. Even more. The result is that grace will rule through God's righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, just as sin ruled in death. Here's the thing. We heard it in our gospel reading this morning. With God, it's always how much more? More. It's always how much more? When I talk with people who are grieving and they say, what's it going to be like in the new creation, in the new heavens? And new I say, you know what, I don't know a lot of details, but I can only tell you this, it will be more. Every joy will be more. Because with God, the trajectory of salvation ends in a how much more, not less. And so Jesus says, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts, how much more does God know how to give a gift? And Paul says, look, the gift doesn't work like the sin. The sin had its own momentum, but the gift has a greater momentum. See, sometimes I think we've, we imagine God's judgment is like this runaway train just barreling toward us with judgment and wrath. And Jesus steps in front of it and graces Jesus saying, oh, stop the train. Paul says it's better than that. Jesus stops the train and reverses its trajectory. And so now the story of your life is not, well, I just got to pick up the pieces from this big fallout of sin. Now the story of your life is how much more? Now the story of your life is a life that is headed towards resurrection. Headed towards how much more? Now, this isn't the prosperity gospel. So I'm not telling you that, oh, your bank account's going to work great, business deal's going to come through, hallelujah. I'm saying that no matter what you experience in life, the end of the story is not death, but resurrection. I'm saying no matter how much sin taints and, and, and other people's sin affects your story and your sin affects other people's story, no matter how much of that is in play, the power of grace to reverse the trajectory and bring redemption in a way that is how much more, that's going to be your story. That's going to be your story. The story is not about your sin and its consequences. That's the gospel according to American personal responsibility. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, yeah, there's consequences, but there's a how much more that is even stronger, even stronger, even greater. And that is why the gospel is good news. Because the gift of Jesus Christ doesn't just stop or prevent it creates a new status, a new relationship, and all of a sudden, new possibilities. Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul concludes this great section by saying, while we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. 
But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you bow your heads this morning?